Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kurt Damon, the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at Kirk DMN. And you can find this podcast at LGG Pod. We are here today to talk about something that we've been meaning to talk about for a long time, and we've been putting off and procrastinating, and our hand has finally been forced, by, been forced. by the internet doing dumb things. And we're truly going to ask those questions that don't have any answers this yes, time. Yes, these definitely don't have answers. Uh, there are suggestions, uh, but there are no clear answers. Uh, the, the reason we're finally covering uh, NFTs is what we're talking about, non-fungible tokens. And the inspiration for this episode happening now is the recent uh, online Twitter drama and mass dunking <laughs> on, <laughs> on the people who bought um, a copy of Yadorovsky's Dune. So before we explain why they bought it and why they're being dunked on for buying it, <laughs> let's talk about what Yadorovsky's Dune, Dune is. is. So I, I recently did an Edamame episode where I provided my thoughts on the new Dune movie. So it's, it's always been considered to be essentially unfilmable. Nevertheless... Uh, after the book was released in 1965 uh, by Frank Herbert, um, there were various uh, you know attempts or desires to make it. Uh, the most famous being uh, Alejandro Yaroski. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I think it's a French name. If it's wrong, I apologize, uh, Mr. Yaroski. Um, anyway, uh, Yaroski wanted to uh, wound up being having owning the option rights to do this. So a uh, the film rights were purchased by a a, a, a group in the 70s who didn't put much focus on it, eventually sold the rights off to uh, another group, and they selected uh, Alejandro Yadras, uh to, to direct this. Uh, his vision was, Kirk, shall we say, ambitious. <laughs> yeah, from, from the research we've done in conjunction with this thing, ambitious is an understatement. I mean, it, this makes what you know they were trying to do with Lord of the Rings look downright normal. Yeah, pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, with it. So I think you said that the original screenplay is about fourteen hours. Yeah, the script clocked in at like fourteen <laughs> hours long. Um, they had Pink Floyd was going to do the soundtrack. The uh, Wall Part Two. Yes, uh, this was pre-Wall actually. <laughs> well, yeah. They had so listen to this list of people attached to, as, as the cast. Orson Welles, David Carradine, Mick Jagger, and Salvador Dali. Oh my goodness. Can, I mean, can you, you think the David Lynch version is weird? Can you, <laughs> Salvador and Dali? You, and you wonder if Mick Jagger, like, if they were, oh, well, if Yonder Oscar's going to have Mick Jagger, then we've got to have uh, Sting, you know, in the, in the David Lynch version. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, Yadorovsky apparently took uh, substantial artistic liberties. The script was very lengthy. And to help pitch uh, to Hollywood and to raise money for it, he he produced this enormous, they call it the Bible. It's this giant, they call it an oblong book, uh, but this huge tome that had uh, the dialogue, uh, the screenplay, the storyboards, drawings, um, a whole bunch of, of detail, like a, like a, a filmmaker's Bible, yeah. like the show Bible. But you even mentioned to me, like, there's there's some substantial art in this thing, too. Oh, yeah. You mentioned, like, it's, it's Geiger, who obviously is famous from Alien. The the story of, of Yadorovsky trying to make this thing is so involved that there's actually a documentary film about the attempt to make this film. <laughs> so we have a movie about the failure to make a movie. There aren't very many copies of this Bible left. Yadorovsky has his. Uh, one went up on auction a couple years ago. Uh, people think there's probably a couple more versions floating around, maybe 10 to 20, wherever created. One of them was put up for auction on Christie's Paris uh, last fall. Yeah. And Christie's estimated the worth to be around 20, 20 to 25,000 euros, I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Kirk and I were just talking right before we hit record. This is actually a, a pretty interesting and, and important bit of film and sci-fi yeah. ar arcana, right? I, I have to admit, I mean, I, I suspect that, you know, looking at Christie's number of $25,000. Seems low. My, to me, it feels low. And, and my thought with it is, the reason I think it feels low... Um, is twofold. One of which is, I think this is a substantial piece of, you know, Hollywood, for lack of a better term, movie making, really, memorabilia. It's it's Dune fans. Dune is obviously a substantial science fiction story, you know, with stuff related around it and an important piece of sort of science fiction literature. It's going to be its own unique thing. It's got an enormous number of good names attached to it. I have the feeling the reason it's valued so low is because nobody had any idea what it was. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, I we mean... didn't know what it was. And, you know, we're sci-fi geeks. Um, I don't know if anybody on the, you know, that listens to this knew about 
this before this thing went up to auction. I think if you were really into this at the time and following it, maybe you'd know what this what this book was. But yeah. I think if you know what it is, you'd probably also agree twenty thousand seems low for something like yeah, this. Yeah, and that's my take. What it was, I'm like, you know, if I would have found out about this auction, like I could have seen bidding on this. <laughs> well, thing. Twenty thousand was going to be the high bid. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, it was not the high bid. As it turns yeah. out, the high bid was two point six million dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that bid was put together by a group called Spice DAO. The DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Presumably referencing Spice yeah, exactly. in the movie. So presumably some some big Dune fans. Uh, it's a bunch of anonymous, uh, I'm going to call them crypto enthusiasts. But uh, crypto enthusiasts pulled together $2.6 million in, I think, mostly crypto, uh, to buy the book for $2.6 million. So here's the question. Why on earth would anybody do that? So we've won this auction. Who cares what we paid for? We now own this book, let's say. Let's say we are uh, the, the anonymous buyers. What do we own now? You own a really cool collectible book. Yeah. We own um, <laughs> some some paper, some bindings, and some ink. Yeah. And in a particular and arrangement. probably a certificate of authenticity issued yeah. by Christie's as to what it is. Yeah. Which um, is, is about as ironclad as a certificate of yeah, authenticity. Exactly. Yes. But what we do not own is, for example, the right to go make Yodorowsky's Dune. As yeah. produced in this book. We do not have that any more than if I bought a so, copy of Harry Potter yeah. off the shelf. Presumably, there is a possibility that you could have attached the movie rights with the book. It doesn't appear to be the case in no, this. No, it's, de- so, it's definitely not. Yeah. It's not mentioned. Yeah. This is just an auction for this one physical piece of property. That's, yeah. all, that's all it is. So, uh, so if you buy this book, you don't have the right to make copies of the book. You don't own the copyright to it. Yep. You don't have the right to go scan it and put it online. That would also be making copies and publicly displaying. Yep. Uh, you don't have the right to make movies out of it. Display the book. Yeah, you can actually publicly display yeah. the single copy you have. Yeah, but you couldn't like scan through all the pages and put yeah. those online. You can. Uh you can't you can't make the movie that's that's represented in here. That's a derivative work because yeah. this is a book, not a movie. Uh, you can't make a TV show based on this. You can't really do anything creative. You can't even with arguably it. have a public reading of it. Uh, yeah. You know, you physically own the book. You arguably can't even have a public reading of it. You yeah. know, you can't read it to other people. Now you can take the book. You can obviously read it. Yep, you can um, read. You it. can give it to other people to read. Yep. Um, you know, something because like anything you do with the physical, your yeah. physical one copy of the book, the right to distribute copies is extinguished under the first sale doctrine. Um, as to this one copy. Yes. So you can freely hand it around. That's why secondary book markets exist. So you can do essentially anything you want in terms of your personal use of this, this one but copy. you have no right to commercialize anything that's in here. One thing also, it's important to keep in mind, you do get the right to destroy it. Yes. Uh, because you do own the physical copy yeah. and it's to yours. actually damage it and make it into something else. You have rights to do things to that physical copy of the book that may go outside of the fact that it, it has collectible value to you or anything else. In the same way, you know, for example, if you were to go and buy a, you know, mint Star Wars figure in package, you can open the package, you know, even though that destroys its collectible value in many yeah, respects. It's yours now. Um, it's yours uh, and stuff like that. We'll put some images, or I'll put a link to Christie's on there. They've got some images of what's inside the book, so you can kind of get an idea of what it is. <laughs> I, I, definitely an interesting book and probably worth way more than $20,000. Yeah, my, 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 my immediate take in conjunction with this thing is that this is a really cool collectible. Um, you know, I would, like, quite frankly, love to see this thing essentially end up in a museum or somewhere where it can be studied. You know, obtain it and stuff like that, because you obviously can grant access to your copy. Yeah. Um, so... You know, all that being said, so we just kind of covered how this works. Um, so who paid $2.6 million for this, and why are they being dunked on for doing that? If it was just that they paid that much money, I think people would pass it off as, okay, well, there's some crazy Dune fans, uh, and they just loved this thing and wanted it. And, okay, that's weird, but, you know, I guess yeah. if you've got the money, you can part with it, then, okay. you know... People just Good paid that much. Yeah, people paid an enormous yeah. amount of money for a single page of Spider-Man number one. You know, why would you want a yeah. single page? We were, Kirk and I were talking <laughs> yesterday about how uh, one of John Lennon's acoustic guitars uh, sold for two hundred fifty thousand dollars at auction. You know, it's only worth that much because John Lennon played it. That's the only reason. Otherwise, it's just an old guitar. Yeah. You know, so uh, if, if you're a fan of something, <laughs> that probably is a particularly good guitar because I you would think John so. Lennon probably played but good guitars. I, I could buy an awfully nice uh, Taylor uh, parlor guitar for about ten thousand dollars or, yeah. or less right now. That's like you know concert hall. <laughs> Top of the line. <laughs> don't need to pay $250,000 for one that probably hasn't been tuned in four decades. Um, anyway, so why are these guys getting dunked on? Well, it was what they thought they were getting. And what they said they were going to do with it. Yes. So we will put the tweet in the show notes. I'll see if I can figure out a way. But they basically said, now that we've won the auction, we are going to scan all the pages... We're going to turn them all into NFTs and put them on the blockchain and sell them, and I guess. And make digital versions. Yeah, make digital yeah. versions. And then we're going to uh, try and get the movie made. We're going to support, or like a TV series made. We're going to support other derivative works in the community. And then we're going to burn the original as a publicity stunt. 
uh, which also then means that nobody else can can do this. Uh, to which everybody in the IP community said, huh? <laughs> yeah. And that's and respect, that's what brought this to our attention. This wasn't just for you guys who may follow it. This wasn't just flying around Twitter. This wasn't just sort of flying around. It was media. on IP lawyer boards. Yeah, this is on IP lawyer boards of like, what the heck is going on here? What do, you know, what does this mean? What are these people thinking? Um, and, you know, because of that, the IP community obviously sort of stood up and take notice. It's rarely that we have something that you know, in the IP community that gets this much public attention. And that's the thing with it, is it's the IP community had one response to this, which was, hold on a minute. You can't do anything. You cobbled together $2.6 million and spent zero on one hour of a lawyer's time. Don't even need a lawyer. The Twitter responses to this were all like, uh, you don't own any IP. One of the best ones I saw as a response to the Twitter thing, and I think I'd say it, uh, was not to the comment that you didn't buy a lawyer, but in $2.6 million, you didn't even check on Wikipedia what yeah. rights attached to it. Uh, you know, And I think there's a great point there. The fact that even Wikipedia would have pointed out to you that this wasn't a lot. You know, potentially the the least you know reasonable I think legal source on the internet was correct in enough that you should have realized what yeah. you said was wrong. And, but this this got us thinking. So you know, all that set aside, you know, it's it's, it's kind of fun to make fun of th this thing. That that said, some of what they want to do is is possible. So they, they say things like we want to support derivative works. Okay, we well, don't have the right to grant people. You know, they can't grant people the right to create any, but nothing stops them from saying as the the organization that now owns this physical copy, perhaps they have some more gravitas, you know, in uh, in the community and and have gained some influence uh, that way. But this is all purely uh, pragmatic commercial considerations. It has nothing to do with what rights yeah. they have. But anyway, well, and, those, and, and because they own it as well, I mean, and I think it's worth considering. If I owned this physical copy and things like some of these imagery that appears. You now have a really good negotiating position to go to Frank Herbert's estate, you know, the author of Dune, and say, since we own this, we would like to produce, you know, 3D versions of some of this yeah. art. Could we get the rights? And, you know, I could very well see that, you know, Frank Herbert's estate would look at that and say, of course, here's the licensing yeah. terms to do that. Um, because you own the copy and can physically do it, you have that ability to know what they are. Now, the problem you bump into when doing those kind of things is, it's not just Frank Herbert's estate you're going to have to deal with. These are, you know, Geiger off. There's drives. a lot more now. There's, there's yeah. an enormous number of them. There's Yadorowski, there's his group. Yes. There's a lot of people involved in this. So anyway, this got Kirk and I thinking about a topic we've been meaning to discuss for a while, which is how exactly does IP work with NFTs? Uh, because we, we get the impression both based on what uh, Spice DAO said and just sort of general commentary in the community and the way that people behave, that there is widespread misunderstanding about uh, IP and NFTs and the extent to which they can or do yeah. overlap. Yeah, and in, in particular, what we really think the, the Spice DAO sort of comment, and again, what we're really talking about here is not anything they particularly did or they particularly said, but the, the Twitter storm that has started around it yeah. shows both some fundamental understanding of IP and the relationship to NFTs, but also a general lack of understanding yeah. of the interface between IP and NFTs. And and part of it is, I think there's also a general understanding of what are NFTs yes. and what is IP. And some of the responses, <laughs> I mean, the responses were appropriately dismissive and 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 a, a little mocking, but some of them even went further than that and, and got to the point of, of getting IP wrong in the other direction of saying, yeah. you would never acquire these rights. Well, no, I mean, this book is just yeah. a transaction by itself. You could still go, anybody, could still go to the rights holders and ask for these rights. Yeah, and again, and that's where I sort of mentioned it early on, there was a possibility that the rights could have been attached to the book based upon how the book was originally created. What's now, it doesn't silly, appear to be the case. What, what's silly is if, if you could pull together 2.6 million, you probably could have optioned the movie rights for about a tenth of that, you know, <laughs> just directly, and actually had the rights you think you want, but yeah. that's a whole, a whole separate thing. So let's talk about um, what NFTs are to start with. Uh, I don't think people really understand that either, uh, because if you don't understand that, it's easy to easy for us to see why you would also misunderstand what IP goes with them, which yep. sneak preview is none. But Well, and we've been talking about IP a lot in this show and what IP is. Yeah. Now we're going to kind of take the, the side and say, let's talk about what an NFT is. Because it's weird. Most of us know what a paperback book is. Yeah. Most of us know what a movie is. You know, we talk about those kind of things in conjunction with IP. NFTs, we're getting into the area where do we really know what an NFT is? Yeah. So conceptually, we have to start with the blockchain. So let's say what the NFT is. An NFT is non-fungible token. Non-fungible token. But what it really is is a is a number on a blockchain. 
That's all it is. Yeah. It's a number on a blockchain. A reference. A reference. Uh, um, and if you, you can go look and see what they look like. They're just long hexadecimal, usually digits, or, or, or some other number. I mean, any number you can represent really any way you want. But it's a number on a blockchain. That's what it is. Uh, and when you buy an NFT, that's what you're buying, is this number on the blockchain. So why do people pay all this money for this thing? Well, we got to go back and talk about... What is a blockchain? Yeah, what is a blockchain? And really what we're getting into now, what is also cryptocurrency. And I think an important thing to keep in mind, you oftentimes will hear people say like Bitcoin and blockchain interchangeably or cryptocurrency and blockchain interchangeably. They're not the same thing. Yeah. Um, One is the technology and one is something using the technology. An implementation of it, yeah. So a blockchain, we won't get into the nitty gritty details. The the short version is that the blockchain is a way to have a unfalsifiable public ledger of transactions. Just like your bank has, just like you have in your checkbook. It's just a list of transactions. Transactions. Who sold what to who, or who transferred how much money to who? We should say, yeah. or, or or engaged whatever other transaction that the that the system's designed for. But it's just a way to have a, an algorithmic consensus as to which transactions are valid and done, and which transactions are not. Yeah. And it uses the power of computers and. Um, the, the Bitcoin blockchain uses something called proof of work where it takes so much effort to to validate something that once somebody's bothered to do it, we assume it's right uh, and everybody agrees. And then there's other algorithms as well that use less power. But basically, it is a ledger just like your bank's, except it's not falsifiable. Somebody could conceivably sneak into your bank and change the records and there'd be no way to know, right? The the thing that we talk about, the legal term I'm going to throw out here, which is sort of related to you know what the, the ledger is, a phrase called chain of title. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a phrase that gets used a lot in the legal world as to what it is. And the chain of title is basically that at some point in time, in any form of property right, we created the right. That right then, we, we make a record that that right is created, and we then pass that record through its various owners. So anybody who's ever sold a car or bought a house or anything like that, you bumped into chain of title. You know, when you have to deal with buying a house, you have to go and research the chain of title to make sure the person who purports to be selling you the house actually owns it in Mm -hmm. accordance with the records. When we talk about things of, you know, concerns of like people who may not actually own land because it was stolen, you know, you have issues like, you know, you know, artworks that were confiscated by the Nazis and are now being sold at auction. Who actually owns those? What those are is problems in chain of title. And, And the real reason it matters in conjunction with chain of title is because... The law has recognized if you're going to have any kind of law that involves property rights and the need to have property rights. And, you know, let's be realistic. You can create legal systems that don't have property rights. It's possible. The vast majority of legal systems around the world right now recognize property rights and in some sense are based on property rights. There are law professors that will tell you all of law is property rights. There's nothing other than property rights in law. So property rights are an extremely important portion of law. Those property rights have to be created somewhere. In intellectual property, we actually have a good example of how this works. So if somebody has a patent, that is a property right. That patent is created because somebody chooses to write it about their invention, file it, and get it granted by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. When a patent is granted, you get, you used to get, and actually they're going to discontinue it now, a very nice copy which has a physical ribbon on the face of it, which is called the ribbon copy of the patent. If you go back far enough in time, if you physically had the ribbon copy of the patent, you owned the patent. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And that was how you transferred title. You physically gave somebody the ribbon copy of the patent. And, and that's a very it. old theory in property, that, that by physically delivering something to somebody, you convey an intent to get rid of it. They call it the, the wrench of, of delivery, the mm-hmm. like the letting go of something physically cost you something on like a psychological or emotional level. And if you're willing to hand something to somebody and let go of it, it's a clear manifestation of your intent to change ownership to somebody else. Yeah. And so that's the, the things we have with it. Now, these systems become far more sophisticated. Now it's all done by, there, there are computer systems in the background. If you ever had to do like a title search for property for a car or for a, and again, yeah. cars are the most common place we bump into this or, pro, or real property, you know, purchase of real estate is the place we bump into this in today. You've potentially done a chain of title search. If you haven't, you may have purchased a piece of t- a property without doing a title search where you basically acknowledge, hey, maybe there's a problem and I'm buying nothing. Yeah. But you but, usually okay. get the property at a discount because you're accepting the risk that there could be a problem with the chain of title. There could be a problem with the chain of title. Um, but that's essentially what it is. So we're talking about this whole thing with chain of title. The problem with all chain of title systems is up until the blockchain, they required some person to yeah. monitor the system. Some kind of registrar or list or something. And yeah. with land, we have the recorder of deeds in yeah. the county that records all these and things. And that is a person who you know exists in yeah. the government, the governmental position, whose job it is is to make sure that all these things get recorded correctly so that the chains of title are clear. But they don't actually check 
if the things are valid, Kirk or I could go down to the recorder's office right now, and I could record a deed that says, I hereby give Kirk the gateway arch. They will dutifully record it. <laughs> yeah. It is meaningless, yeah, but exactly. they will dutifully record as, it. As we know from certain things selling the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. I mean, you know, those are the kind of things you can potentially bump into. The key to it is, is that somebody then later on looking at it would go back and review it if they were purchasing the gateway arch and say, hey, wait a minute, what is this thing in here? And that would trigger them to yeah. research it, you know, do that. And they'd look and see that there is no evidence that I ever had title to this thing. Yeah. And of course, it belongs to the United States, so I guess technically we both already own part of it. But. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've got those kind of elements, you know, as to you know what you have with it. So that's that's the thing around chain of title. What blockchain is in some respects is a technical solution to say, let's eliminate the human out of this. And what we're really trying to do is we're trying to eliminate that error. The idea that I can record something which isn't really true creates an error on the system, which actually imposes a cost later on. For Sometimes significant cost. We have an entire system, entire system of title insurance just to insure against these kind of errors in property records because the U.S. has famously terrible property records. Yes, and, and keep in mind, the United States has better property records than a lot of countries. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, I had a good friend in law school uh, who's unfortunately since died, but one of the things she did um, is she used to do um, sort of non-governmental work, and one of the things she really enjoyed doing is she would go into countries and she would actually help them recreate property systems when the recorders of deeds had been blown up by a bomb, yeah. you know, in war, um, and that kind of thing with it, where it's, you know, hey, how do we then recreate these systems? And again, that's, you have to have a start, and then the idea is once you have the start, so long as you maintain the system, the chain gets maintained. The idea behind blockchain and why it's called blockchain is to eliminate any possibility that the chain is inaccurate. Because instead of having a single chain and everybody going to the single chain and looking at it and determining whether or not it's right, you make essentially an infinite copy of the chain. You give a copy to everyone and all the chains will always match. Therefore, yep. they're always right. And if you try to, fall, if one person gets a copy and tries to falsify a transaction, well, nobody else is going to have it. Yeah. And the consensus algorithm will basically weed it out and say, well, the, the, the chains that are passing muster don't have this transaction, so that one's just not done. And you can keep trying to add it, but you're going to keep having the same problem. In theory, you could force a false transaction onto the blockchain if you controlled enough of it and could process it fast enough. Yeah. And in situations where something like that has happened or there's been an error, uh, the people who are in charge of the blockchain have done something called a hard fork, where they just say, you know what, forget that, it never happened, and go on our merry way. Which in some ways is disturbing to blockchain purists because it takes away the whole, oh, it's an autonomous system that requires yeah. nobody to manage it. No, there really is still somebody in charge of it. And, this is, and that's the thing with it is the, the whole sort of theory behind blockchain is it's not supposed to be able to be controlled by it's any supposed to be completely group. decentralized yeah. yeah what we're what we find in practice is that yeah that's how it's written but there's like three people who control everything and, yeah and, and this is yeah. and this is a point we're going to come back to here in a little bit is the idea of you have potentially people controlling the blockchain and it not being completely uncontrolled and if that's relevant in conjunction with nfts so that's why we want to get into it but this is this concept of it being a ledger is why it's it's gained popularity as a currency because it's now looking at it and saying the United States government controls what the U.S. dollar is. We have this thing called Bitcoin or Ethereum or name your favorite coin, you know, that's out Doge there. Dogecoin. Dogecoin or Doggycoin, however that gets pronounced. I always say Doge. <laughs> yeah. I always said Doge and now I think it may actually be Doggy. I'm not sure as to which way it is because obviously it's associated with the Doggy. Um, the, um, the thing is, you know, that you can't do this. Essentially, it's the, you know, it's, it's controlled by nobody. So therefore, it's completely centralized. No government controls it. No organization controls it. What you're, you're bumping into in certain respects is you have these things like hard forks where somebody still has to control it. And it's a constant, I would say, um, it hasn't happened very often. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen very often, but it's a constant push pull between can we get to the purest form of this? Yeah. Or not and what it is. And so that's what we've got. And again, that's where I think a lot of the cryptocurrencies are rely on. And there's been a number of things that have started using blockchain outside of currencies in the last, I would say, probably five years. Ethereum. Yeah, the, the Ethereum blockchain is a version that allows you to implement what's called smart contracts. The idea is that rather than pay a lawyer to write an actual contract, we can just write code, and the code is the contract, and it's all self-executing. Uh, that all sounds lovely. It's not exactly how Ethereum works. The, the data's on yeah. the ledger, um, and you, you have to buy something called gas to power your transactions and, and whatnot. So, you know, I won't get into the details of how that works for two reasons. One, they're complicated, and two, I don't understand them. And I'll tell you just early <laughs> as to what it is. I was actually only a fan of Ethereum for its, precisely the idea of the smart contract because I saw it... The, the issue with Bitcoin in my mind is that there was nothing that Bitcoin really worked for other than a currency, 
whereas Ethereum is a currency to power a secondary form of transaction. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was always the, the better way to use blockchain, so to speak. Yeah. So let's talk about what an NFT is. It is a number that you have, you know, somebody has basically agreed to buy something from you. And in exchange, you are giving them uh, this, this token, this number yep. that represents the thing that was bought. And the most common example we see of this is digital artwork, where an artist is commissioned, commissioned to create some interesting or unique piece of art, or sometimes it's done programmatically by computers. And then the digital artwork is usually auctioned off or just sold at a price. Uh, people pay usually in cryptocurrency to get the token and now that artwork is quote unquote theirs yes okay so just like the book kirk what exactly do you own when you buy the token for digital art and that's i think where we get into the thing of nfts and what exactly is an nfts people say what you own is the digital art and the answer is that's not right not always not what necessarily you, not necessarily what you own is the token yeah and it's not even clear how exactly you own the token. Other because, than the person who sold it to you says it's yours. Yeah. You know, you don't, you know, you have a, a blockchain thing that sort of says it's your token. There's some connection with it, with your digital wallet, you know, whatever it might be. But it's not clear how exactly you own a hexadecimal number that's representative of something. The, the easiest way for those of you who are into programming and Ben will obviously tell me if this is wrong. It's like saying you own the pointer in kind Yeah, code. it is. You know, you don't own the code that it's pointing to. You own the pointer. That's also important. The, the digital art itself is not usually placed on the ledger. It's just posted somewhere on a website. Yeah. And then there's a link. Maybe the link is in the ledger. Maybe not. Uh, usually I think the link is. But there's just a link that's a URL that says where the artwork is. But there's no other connection other than the link. And nothing stops a person who controls the server holding the artwork from just deleting it. Or yeah. replacing it with something else. Well, and actually, we saw one of the articles on the web, and I love that there was a, a, we'll link a, a to woman this, yeah. who did it, who made a digital artwork that appeared different depending on how it was viewed. Depending on which browser you yeah, used to look at. Yeah, which browser you used to look at it, and, who, and when it was looked at. And when you purchased it, it immediately became the poop emoji. Yes. Um, that's what she changed it to. And the comment with it was, apparently, she even advertised that that's the way it was going to occur. I have to admit, quite frankly, that was brilliant. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> it has a thing with it. One, it's brilliant as a concept. It's also kind of brilliant as a piece of art. It is. <laughs> as, as a concept behind the art. Uh, and the example I immediately think of, and I know of this is a piece of art that's out there. I can't remember the famous artist that does it. There is a glove he made, which is manufactured out of a huge number of um, spines. The glove is manufactured in such a way that if you were to put it on, it would take all of the skin off of your hand to take it off. Ugh. So it is a glove which cannot be put on um, in conjunction with it, but it is a glove. And it's completely, you can put it on completely safe because the way the spines are designed, it would not cause you a problem. That's sort of what she designed as a digital form of artwork. And from that point of view, I kind of look at it and I'm like, you know, that's actually kind of that's a cool clever. piece of artwork. It's, yeah. it's clever. Uh, I like it. I appreciate it for what she did in conjunction with the but artwork. What happened in practice is um, the artwork disappeared. Yeah. Now, she actually did, of course, purposefully disappear the art because she turned it into the poop emoji. Um, at the same time, the poop emoji then disappeared. Yes. So somebody between her and the blockchain, it's all still in the blockchain. The data is all still there. The pointer is the still there. The pointer is all still there. But her, her point was even the pointer itself she couldn't find anymore because the interfaces we use to do these transactions are, again, controlled by a very small number of people. And everybody just goes to them by default. And for whatever reason, they decided to erase this one from their records. Now, if you actually went back to the blockchain itself, you, you could still find it. But for all practical purposes, it's gone. Well, and the real key about it is, remember, on the blockchain, if the artwork didn't appear on the blockchain, it just appeared as the link, you're How not going to find the artwork yeah. because it literally isn't in the blockchain. So one of the popular ones, is want to talk about the Bored Apes, Kurt, because you know those better than I do. <laughs> yeah, no, so the, I, I, would, I just started this sort of thing. I think the, the original thing people consider NFTs are the CryptoPunks. Um, it's sort of the original NFTs, which my understanding was issued by Ethereum itself. Um, you know, so what it was, they originally were issued for not a lot of money and uh, things like that, but they are selling for enormous numbers now. The big group that has come out of it, and I think was shortly thereafter, is the Bored Apes. Um, we are seeing Bored Apes everywhere. It's a series. I don't know how many series exactly it is. Uh, of ape drawings. They are cartoony drawings. They're kind of fun. They're, they're all very silly, you know, yeah. Some have laser eyes, you know, mm -hmm. some have mutant features, you know, they're doing things. They're all basically have a similar board expression as sort of a lot of it. Um, they are, you know, interesting artworks, I think, without any question. They're kind of cute, you know, kind of fun. I don't know how they were generated. I don't know if they were done entirely on computer or I, I assume or one of them was at least done normally to maybe use a computer yeah. to vary it. I you know, know, I don't know exactly how that thing worked. But these things have become enormously popular in conjunction with NFTs. 
to this fact that it's I, I'm on you know one of the platforms that does you know um, uh, small amounts of ownership where you can buy portions of things. They have Bored Apes available as things you can buy. Um, these are selling at auction, um, you know, in legitimate transactions, so to speak, of NFTs for tens of thousands of dollars uh, for these Bored Apes. Now, there's also been, and I think if you look on Twitter, you will find Twitter storms of people messing around with Bored, ape, with bored Apes. You know, point there, there's people pointing out, hey, you don't know the IP in the Bored Ape, so I'm going to copy your Bored Ape and I'm going to post it back to you or use it as my avatar, you know, sort of things like that um, with it. And that's caused some of the issues about people, you know, running around things of what exactly do you own? And that has created this question. So I think those are, when people think of NFTs, they have a habit of thinking of Bored Apes as being what they are. Yeah. And that's not a bad way to think about it. There are an enormous number of NFTs, from my understanding. Most NFTs are minted, and minting is the term for creating an NFT. Yeah, which costs money. I, I yeah. think the last I heard uh, to, to mint some NFTs, I, I know somebody who minted a, a group of NFTs and cost them about a thousand bucks. Yeah, and part of it when they do when you mint NFTs, the reason it costs money is because you have to put them on the blockchain. Yeah, which and you have to pay for the transaction. Yeah. you have to pay for the transaction. Um, and so you know that, but you know a lot of these things are are minted as groups and series. In some sense, I, I comment about it as in conjunction with art. It's kind of like um, like bronze statuary or photographs, where you know a, an artist may take a single photograph. He doesn't just have one copy of the photograph. He may make a series of two hundred and fifty of a variety of different sizes. They're yeah. all you know pretty filtered, um, things like that. Where the series is, this is what it is, and at the end there are no more made. He agrees to not make any more. Um, you know, it's what it is. Or at least if he's going to make more, they're not part of a series. They're part of a different series. So there's a little bit of a sort of false creation around the artwork here of art which is freely reproducible, yeah. but is now... False rarity. Yes, false rarity, but is made rare because of the creation of it. So the issues you get into with NFTs is, since there's not really any... There's no like legal connection, right, between the art and yeah. the token, other than that the person who is selling you the token says that there is. So it's kind of like somebody coming up to you with a, a, a photograph in hand and saying, um, this, this is the original and I will sell it to you for X dollars. And you agree, but the only real assurance you have that it is the original or that they even have the right to sell it to yeah. you is that they're saying that they do. And so this, this presents weird IP issues. So, you know, in the, in the best of circumstances, like we just went through with Dune, you have a transaction where the person who's selling you the NFT has the right to do it. Uh, you now own, and we'll talk about what this means later, the, the digital copy, whatever that means. Uh, and, um, and, and everything, everything's fine. But what that does not give you the right to do is, is, is anything that, uh, Spice DAO says they want to yeah. do. Uh, presumably you have at least an implied right to display it, like as your avatar or something, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have the right to go make prints, to authorize somebody else to make prints, to make derivative works, to authorize anybody else to use it. Uh, you know, if you're buying it, you'd, you'd think, even if it's not explicit in the auction, everybody would expect you to be able to at least display it yourself yeah. for your own personal reasons, uh, but you probably can't commercialize it. Yeah, so one example is what it is, and again, I like to use this as the thing, is thinking about the idea, and for anybody who's ever bought art or been to an art fair, go to an art fair if you haven't been to one, walk into one of the photography booths, and you will discover that most photographs are numbered. They're one of a series, it's what it is. I own, we, my wife and I purchased for our house, a number of those artworks. So we may own a photograph which is labeled 12 of 250. What that is an indication is it's the artist, that was number 12 that was created, I mean, that's the number that they had. There are 250 total to be created. When I bought that artwork, what do I have? I have a pretty picture to hang on my wall um, from an art, you know, that I appreciate, that I like. In the same way, had I purchased a single painting, that before the time it's one of one, but in this case, it's it's a photograph can be reproduced. For that reason, photographs tend to be less expensive than original paintings or, or artworks that can only be one. If you, again, if you purchase brand sta bronze statues or bronzes, um, similar type of thing. You will oftentimes find that, you know, hey, a bronze is numbered, you know, one of 100, because a bronze is reproduced on a machine. I mean, that's yep. they're not, they, the artist molds an original and then reproduces it in bronze on a machine. Um, so you have those types of things with it. Once I own that artwork and it's displayed in my house, the artist cannot stop me from displaying it in my house. I have that right, you know, as to what it is. I have the right to resell that copy. Or said differently, the, the copyright owner, which is still the photographer, does not include the right to control non-public display. Yes, yes. So you can't publicly display without permission from the copyright owner, but since there is no grant of the exclusive right to private display, you can private display all you want, and yeah. you can sell that copy to somebody else to privately dis display. Yeah, and so and those, those rights are going to transfer with the artwork. You know, it, Now, it is also possible I could get a right to publicly display it. Which you probably a, have to pay more for. Yeah. Now, in a number 
of cases, you know, when you have artworks, again, like I can purchase a right to an artwork, I may donate it to a museum at some point in time during it. Can the museum display it? Potentially. You Probably. Know, so it is because I think I there might even be a statutory right. exception yeah. for some of that. I own the right to, to, to the physical thing. I provide it. Now, the museum is unique because it provides... A, a not so much even a public good, but a newsworthy presentation yeah. is the way to put There's it. There's a strong First Amendment slash fair use argument there. So you bump into those kind of elements with it. But yeah, you know, could I have a, a public showing of this thing? Well, not necessarily. Can I have people over to my house to look at it? Of course I could. Again, obviously yeah. it's still a private display. But it's one of those things where... Well, could you sell tickets? Could you advertise I'm selling tickets, tickets to go yeah. walk through my house? Well, no, now you're, no, now it's an you're art gallery. Yeah. yeah, you're an art gallery. <laughs> um, and so, you know, those are the kind of things you can say. So there's some weird rights around there. But the key to it is, is again, I own the individual thing with it. When we talk about the idea of saying it's an NFT, I own the right, presumably, to do the same thing. The problem is, when I come to an NFT, what do I own? Well, I don't own a copy. I own a pointer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you, you, you own even less than with physical art. And this is where it gets tricky. There's also the, the fundamental problem of, I get the impression that most of the people selling the NFTs are not the artists themselves. I think yes. a lot of them are commissioning artwork from freelancers or from a, spe a, spe a specific artist. And Kirk and I have seen this happen over and over just in our practices that people go online and get one-page contracts off the interwebs and then use those. But those contracts are often, I mean, they're almost always written for some other purpose or they're not particularized yeah. to the transaction you want. And so... You you have risk here because um, you know normally if I was to go hire an artist to write a con to to produce art for me for something commercial, I would want the artist to stand behind what he or she has produced. I want what we call warranties and representations, basic assurances that one the work is original. Okay, that they're not going to steal from somebody head, else. Yeah. It's actually called the warrant of originality uh, that it doesn't uh, infringe anybody else's IP, and I also want some assurances that they're not going to make something similar and then sell it to somebody else. I want my thing to be unique, mm -hmm. and sometimes in contracts like that, you'll even include a situation where they'll produce, say, uh, five proof of concepts or, or five uh, um, uh, treatments. You get to pick one, and then depending on how much you're paying the artist, you also get the rights to the other four that you're not going to commercialize, or they or they retain the rights, but they agree not to produce them for some certain amount of time. So these things are often negotiated to ensure that the art you get is, in fact, unique, original, uh, and that the stuff that you didn't want isn't going to get sold to somebody else and then used to compete with you. I'm going to pull this into, again, the real world and things people have potentially encountered. If you ever hired a photographer to take family photos or to take, more particularly, wedding photos... They tend to take far more pictures than you get in your album. Generally, you buy an album which has a fixed number of reproduced pictures that you're going to choose and you're going to put in it. What then happens to the rest? In a lot of cases, you can purchase the original, the artist proof that they have, you know, as a secondary thing. So you can buy an mm -hmm. album which has all the unused pictures in it. If you don't choose to purchase those, generally they're destroyed. And um, that, you know, sort of the agreement that you often have with the artist. Now, the artist may be able to use it as well for personal promotional purposes. Yeah. Portfolio things like use. That, portfolio yeah. use um, and stuff along those lines. But a lot of times, if you don't purchase them, they're destroyed. You know, and, and that's because of the fact that, you know, you are supposed to own the photos of your wedding. There should not be a second person that has huge numbers of the photos of your wedding. That's a contract that sort of generally gets created between you and the artist. Now, is that the obligation if that's the thing you create? Of course not. You can contract to anything you like. It's just in many respects, that's the default. And so that's what people are used to, is the yeah. idea that, you know, yes, these things will be destroyed by the artist that I don't pick. Um, you know, that type of thing. And again, if you ever hire a photographer to do family pictures, to do portraits, anything like that, that's probably what you're going to do. Um, it can be particularly important, and so obviously in certain scenarios, depending on how those portraits are made and what they're of. Yeah. You know, if you're a particularly prominent family, you don't necessarily want extra portraits of you running around. Um, you know, so that's a useful thing to sort of think of. Yeah, and with, with the NFT art in particular, you have to remember that the, the rights that people want to use other people's stuff, which is what we're talking about here, are all defined by the Copyright Act. So it's important yes. to track who owns the copyrights. And we've talked before on the show, the copyright is owned by default by the author. Yep. And there's only two situations where it is not owned by default by the author. Uh, both fall into something called work made for hire. The first situation is you are an employee creating the work within the scope of your employment. When you're hiring a freelancer, generally not the case. Yes, yep. uh, the other situation is where you're hiring a freelancer and you have a contract that says so, but even then, it doesn't always transfer. It's only for certain types certain of works. Certain types of works, and basically it was a recognition at the time the Copyright Act, the Copyright Act was passed that there were freelancer arrangements that were basically employee arrangements at the time this was yep. done. It's an artifact, and the thing to keep in mind is that that second thing 
that second reason of how you can become a work made for hire it is really an artifact and it shows. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the, so typically when you have an, a copyright transfer, if you're going to have one, uh, you, you basically say it's a work made for hire and to the extent it's not a work made for hire, the artist agrees to assign the rights over to yeah. whoever's paying for it anyway. So it's we call that the, the belt and suspenders <laughs> approach. Make sure we got it covered. It's also important to keep in mind in conjunction with copyright assignments, they must be in writing. Yes, they must be. They must be in writing, or they're not. Uh, they don't work. Uh, and then the, the, there's also a, always a, a very remote risk with copyright assignments. There is a reversionary clause in the Copyright Act that says that after I think it's 50 or 56 years or something that you can undo uh, uh, transfers like that and get stuff back. That's how Paul McCartney uh, got the rights to the Beatles catalog there, back after. There's so been a number of these it. happening yeah. recently. I think even Stan Lee's estate has actually claimed certain rights now. Yeah. In, in when well, these people live long enough, ones, they're eventually yeah. able to go, go get their rights back. Yeah. So anyway, so. The artist uh, owns the NFT art and the copyrights to it and is the only person who can authorize people to make movies, make copies, yeah. do all these things, uh, unless they've sold the copyrights to whoever is selling the NFTs, yeah. which I've never seen one of these contracts before, but I would guess that the average NFT minter doesn't think about these things and probably only has the right yeah. to sell the token and whatever is implicitly going with yeah. that. Now, and that's the thing is that the contract may very well say they only have the right to mint the token and make the token. They may very well own the copyright. I think one of the things he thinks to keep in there mind There may be here, no contracts in a lot of cases. Yeah. I think a lot of people go on like Fiverr and stuff like that and I've bought art off of there and yeah. there, there's no contract at all. Well, there's a default contract in Fiverr in the background. There, is there, there, okay. is a, there is a default contract of what you buy on Fiverr and what the agreement is um, and, and sort of things like that. The, the thing that I think to keep in mind with this and where I, where I want to go from right now is keep in mind there are an enormous number of NFTs, and each one of those is going to have its own contract. Our take is there are almost certainly ones out there that all of this is papered, correct, and legally enforceable. I would guess it's the minority. It is probably a minority. There are also ones that are out there which probably have no contract at all, which means that even the minting of the NFT is a violation of copyright, even though that's what they all agreed they were going to do. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think that's probably debatable. Like minting the NFT. So I mint the NFT, and I say whoever buys this owns this piece of art. What am I selling though? Like, I guess I've got a copy of the the artwork on my web server, so you can see what it is you're buying. Presumably, the artist I commissioned to do this has at least give, given me an implied license to display it and to sell a token for this purpose. But it's absent a written contract. It is up in the air as to what other rights the artist intended to transfer to the person minting the token and selling it. Yeah. And it's even more up in the air what rights that person even has to transfer to the buyer, much less what rights they intend to transfer to the buyer. And I think the market is getting more sophisticated on this as these things get attention drawn to them. But absent this stuff all being papered over, all the rights are basically still held by the original artist, and at most a public display right for your own personal non-commercial use has been passed through. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that I think when you get IP attorneys involved in this, where we start to freak out about NFTs. Yeah. Like, where's the papers? There's yeah, no we, papers. We are very much of the, you know, the, we can even look at it again and say, in the event that the photograph, if I physically have the photograph, you bump into that idea that if I physically have it, I presumably have some rights to that copy. I got that copy somehow yeah. by the fact that the person gave it to me. If I didn't outright steal it, I have it now I could have outright stolen it. And you know, those are the things you then bump into. When it comes to something which is digital, there is that that thing is not there. And so, you know, there is no original physical yeah. thing to be transferred. So now we we lose that ability of even saying because the physical thing transferred, something must have happened. Now we bump into the there is nothing physical. So did something happen at all? And if so, what? Yeah, and so and what do you do in a situation where so you're the buyer of a token and you've got this art and like I said, the art's not usually on the blockchain. You get a copy of it, I think typically like Sometimes. a high res copy, higher res anybody else gets. Um, to do with what you want, but let's say that you take that and put it online. Well, now everybody's got it. So what yeah. What do you own that they don't at that point? Nothing, really. The, the best way I've described NFTs, and I think this is very accurate. Anybody, again, who's, you know, if you're into science fiction collectibles and have ever been to, you know, a science fiction convention, stuff like that, and have gotten autographs. Um, I have them, you know, I mean, I happen to see, you know, the man who played Darth Maul. Um, and the one who I love to talk about, um, the man who played Duutini Jawa, um, who is a lovely man, if you ever met him. He is incredibly fun. <laughs> you know, so the... Um, and he will sign all sorts of things, and he loves doing it, and he has fun doing it, and he loves being the Utini Jawa, I think, you know, so his, his name. Um, I have a, you know, Star Wars flexible card game card, the Utini card, which depicts him <laughs> as a Jawa, that he has signed. I have a certificate of authenticity that goes with that from the convention, which asserts that he was at the convention, and that the, the card was signed at the convention. So, that presumably verifies it is his signature on it. Now, it's 
the, the way these things are usually done is it's not 100% verification of its signature, but basically it's impossible to fake. Yeah. It's sort of the way it comes down to because I have to have shown it to them in order to get the certificate of authenticity. Um, so you, you bump into, you know, that type of thing. What you tend to bump into in NFTs, and I have to describe them as this way, is the NFT, I am selling the certificate of authenticity and keeping the card. Yeah. The card is going to stay uh, somewhere safe, uh, but I will sell you the certificate of authenticity that says that uh, you own the certificate of authenticity. authenticity that's attached to this card. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where you get into now. Now do you start to see where I think IP attorneys sort of get into and where potentially we have the issue of what do you own? Yeah. I, I think the more we talk about this, I suspect what you're kind of buying is essentially the an exclusive a, a quasi exclusive public display right for art, especially. Um, now, I think if someone so we, we, Kirk and I talked about this yesterday. Um, w would you normally pay ten thousand dollars for that for a JPEG? I mean, nobody would, right? Yeah. So why is it that this market? Like, there's nothing about the blockchain that you need to make this work. There's no reason why twenty years ago. I couldn't set up a website and slap a bunch of JPEGs on it yeah. and sell you um, sell you my JPEG for for eight thousand yeah. dollars. But only an idiot would have paid for that, right? Now, so why are people willing to pay now? Yeah. Now keep in mind an example of this, and it's what I actually thought was a very good example from another podcast talking about it. Is there are artists who obviously do like art installations, and one of those they talk about, I can't remember the artist's name. He uses fluorescent tubes and arrangements of fluorescent tubes. If you purchase one of his artworks you get the fluorescent tubes. Well, you can't get them arranged because yeah. of the fact that it's, it's made to the space. But you get the fluorescent tubes, you get a, presumably a blueprint of how to hang them to correctly make it, and you get a certificate of authenticity from him that says this is the artwork as to what it is. Mm -hmm. Now, given that you have the blueprint, if I was to post the blueprint online and somebody was to put up a series of the identical fluorescent tubes, not the ones I own, but identical fluorescent tubes because they're commercially available in the same pattern... Have they violated my ownership of the individual artwork? No. Now, they may have violated his copyright mm -hmm. in conjunction with the artist's copyright, but they have not violated my ownership of his copy. Um, I never even have to put it back up again. You know, I mean, I can still own it. And again, it's, you can, there, there was a bit of this already with the idea of difficult artworks, artworks that were dependent upon, you know, space or dependent upon, you know, what they were made out of commercial goods, where what was the artwork effectively was just to get of authenticity that it is the artwork. Yeah. So why did we need the blockchain to do this? This already existed. This this market already existed. And Kirk and I have speculated that it's it's because of the mania with Bitcoin where it gained value that once you throw the, the cryptocurrency and blockchain buzzwords, it feels like more than just it's something on a guy's server somewhere, although it still is just it's something on a guy's server somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but the, the blockchain uh, and, and the consensus algorithm adds a sense of, of more legitimacy to it. Uh, because it's public, it's it's not falsifiable, and I can at least point to something that yeah. is indisputably in the public record to say, no, look, everybody involved in this agreed that it's quote-unquote mine, whatever mine means in this context. And I think the, the market, by and large, has not yet sorted out what mine means. I think we as lawyers could easily do that, uh, and which, by the way, if you need that done, you call us, we'll do that for you. Um, but I, I think um, this is a situation where, you know what it sounds like to me, Kirk, this is like a, a, a bizarre system of digital patronage um, where you just you know you would never normally pay this much money for a jpeg but if you like something you might very well much just make a donation we have patreon yeah. people make donations and get nothing in return just to support the art so it kind of seems like maybe a more structured and verifiable way to engage in a form of patronage and that's the thing i want to get into is it's and i'll just tell sort of you know generally with this i think the nft has a very interesting place in the future which it has not gone to yet, so to speak. And the idea behind that, and a lot of people say this, is it's a way for digital artists to sell their work. And I agree with that. I think this is a way that digital artists can sell their work in a way that was difficult beforehand. Yeah. In, in the same way as I talk about our, our arrangement of fluorescent tubes could potentially be difficult to sell. If you are a digital artist and you want to sell, I want to sell my original artwork. I want to say these are only one copies. Yeah. The reality of it is, you can create a legal transaction where that is sold. 
And we had that. I mean, for, for years, you used to be able to go to, I forget what website it was, but I used to want like cool sci-fi backgrounds for my computer. And there were digital marketplaces where you could buy the high resolution image and it was a couple bucks. Okay. Yeah. And if you wanted it, you paid for it. You can still do that. Those are out there. Uh, nobody was paying $8,000 for it though. Yeah. Uh, well, and again, part of that's because it's not an original. There was kind of a recognition. There was no original of this thing. Yeah. As opposed but, to But there's painting. not with this art either, yeah. right? It's digital art. I mean, the, the idea of an original with digital art, does the idea of an original with physical art does not have an analog in digital art, yeah. right? Once, even when the process of making it in Photoshop, there's 6,000 copies that get made in memory and swapping in and out of memory. There is no original, right? Even yeah. if I take a copy and put it on a thumb drive and say, this is the original. No, it's not. There's one on my hard drive. That one was there first. Like, yeah. uh, so the, the, the idea of the original doesn't really apply in this context. And but so we, it's yeah. a helpful, like, like analytical framework. But when it comes to like, where's the value, there's a difference between this was John Lennon's guitar versus I'm buying a photograph of John Lennon's guitar. Yeah. Or even I'm buying the identical model of guitar to John yeah. Lennon's guitar. That was the next one off the assembly line yeah. from the one John but, Lennon. But that had. one's probably worth $2,000 because yeah. John Lennon never touched it, right? Like, so the, it's, it's an interesting, you know, maybe this is more philosophical, but the way that we assign value to things you know, and NFTs in particular, to me at least, it's it's snake oil. Like there's there's nothing to it. There's no asset backing it uh, that that has some sort of intrinsic value. But if you're a capitalist, you understand that things are worth what people will pay for them. Yeah. So right now we have a market for these things. And actually, one of our colleagues here at the firm said it best: if you're buying cryptocurrency, if you're buying NFTs, you're not buying an asset. You're buying human behavior. Yeah, and it's a great way to look at it. And and my take of it is is. We can create an asset here. A patent is a piece of paper. Yeah. But we create an asset behind it. It's an abstract it. set of rights. Yeah, it's an abstract set of rights. We can create legal systems where there can be a digital original and a digital original is sold. Yep. I think the comment with it is, is we have not yet done that. There's no real consensus on what that yeah. means. I think NFT is probably the most, most, the strongest emerging consensus on how you do that. Um, but I, I strongly suspect that because most of these transactions are not adequately papered over, what is passing through is at most implied license rights. Um, uh, and not to keep beating that drum, but the problem with that is courts don't like those. Like if, yeah. So let's say you bought one of these things, and then the original artist made one that's almost identical and sold it to somebody else. I mean, you'd probably be kind of mad, right? And you'd say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. I bought this. Well, maybe they can do that. And these are the kind of legal issues that I don't think are being talked about or thought out very well in advance. And, they, and, and the courts have not yet seen Courts haven't seen it, and 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 there's also uh, one of our friends, Ed from Grand Rapids. Ed, hi. Uh, raised the question: Could you make it so that the copyright rights have to go with the token by contract? Could you write a contract that says if you have the token, you have the contract rights, and then if you were to which one you could write that contract, right? I could write one up yeah. that says. Whoever, whoever has custody of this token on the blockchain owns all these copyright rights. The artist would have to agree to that. Everybody would have to agree to the contract, but you could set that up. Everybody could agree. Here's the problem, though. What happens when someone violates the contract? So I do this. I sell it to Kirk, and Kirk transfers the token, um, and then uh, someone says, using okay. A, using a contract expressly that states I yeah. do not assign the copyright. Yeah. Or, or, or vice versa. Kirk assigns the copyright rights to somebody else, but does not give them the token. Okay, and nowhere in his contract with that person does he mention anything about the token. And now there's a fight, right? We have a, we have a contested title. We have one person yeah. with a chain of title to the copyright. Somebody else with. And I sell the token to somebody else, right? So now we have a mess. We have a mess in our hands, and it's it's debatable, right? The person buying from me as the miscreant who started all this by splitting these things up. Uh, that person is what we call a bona fide purchaser for value. They had no reason to believe they were not getting what they were promised. Uh, and there's not like a standard warranty you give in a contract that says, uh, by the way, I'm also giving you all the tokens that are required. Maybe that becomes part of our contract language at some yeah. point. And, and again, I think the real thing behind this is, and I think this is a little bit of where we're going with it, and sometimes a little bit where Ben and I disagree, I think, you know, and where this thing's going, is where we look at this and say, there is a legal system that can be created yet. The re there are, you know, around here. The issue yeah. with it is, is has it been created yet? And I think we both agree, and the answer to that is not, not really. entirely. Yeah. And and the question with it is, is are we going to create it by default before the courts get a hold of it? So basically, by the time the courts get a hold of it, they're going to look at it and say, no, this is what everybody accepts that it is. Yeah. And I think the real problem we've got here is that there isn't general consensus of what these things are. And the reason we don't have general consensus, I think, is what these things are is because we are minting NFTs the artists don't approve of. 
And that's our big problem. I think if you get into something where you say, hey, an artist creates something, says, I want to create an NFT in my own work. This is how it's going to be. This is what the contractually is. I'm going to paper that all over. I think a court will enforce that day in and day out. Yeah. But when you have a scenario where it's that artist doesn't create it, a second person comes along and says, I'm going to make an NFT out of somebody else's artwork. I'm going to mint it. I'm going to sell it. And then I'm going to disappear with the money. Now you've got this bona fide purchaser that presumably purchased something. Plus you've got the artist who wins in this case. And I think a lot of people look at it and say, the bona fide purchaser should lose in that case. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is, is a lot of times in the legal, legal defaults, the bona fide purchaser wins yeah. or at least wins something. And so when we look at it, it's the how do we sort this out? And that's where even these questions we're getting into and discussing here are what really did you purchase? Did you know what you were doing? Did you know what you're getting into? And where we lack general consensus or the general consensus may just be flatly wrong. Yeah. It can be extremely difficult to sort out how we're going to deal with this in the future. And and if I have one thing to say about NFTs, again, I think it's NFTs have a future and I think a very interesting future around this area. The problem with it is we need to sort out this default before we keep minting them. Yes. So that everybody knows what we're getting and then they will work. What we have, what's been described as a gold rush right now, and you've got two groups of people that are that are involved in the gold rush. You've got investors who understand everything we just talked about. Yeah. That that what you're buying is 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 kind of speculation human on human behavior, which in some sense isn't that much different than buying a stock. You know, <laughs> I, I own part of a part of board ape. That's why I own part of the yeah. board ape. Yeah, Kirk's, Kirk's part of this market. I I I'm, I will tiptoe into it at some point. Um, so, you know, you have people who understand what the market really is here, and they understand that as long as there is perceived value, whether or not there's actual value, and whether there is such a thing as actual value is a whole separate question, but as long as there is perceived value or market value, there are uh, investment opportunities that are profitable. Then you've got the people who don't understand this, and I think un- un- are either being taken advantage of deliberately by, by certain nefarious actors, or um, or just everybody together is, is possessed with... Uh, uh, the, the same brand of ignorance to where we all collectively agree that the wrong thing is, is right. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I think is a lot of what's going on. When I talk to people who are involved, especially on the, and this is not like Bored Ape, I think those guys know what they're doing, but the small scale people minting things that are just kind of dabbling, I think, you know, one, they're not going to hire a lawyer. I mean, these guys that bought, you know, Sp- Spice DAO d- didn't bother to even consult the Wikipedia copyright page. You know, apparently. Apparently. Um, <laughs> Maybe that was their publicity stunt, was to intentionally say ignorant things. I do to have to attention. wonder how much of this was a purposeful publicity stunt. Well, if frankly. it was and it worked and we have all been punked. Yes. <laughs> and, and quite frankly, if it was good for you. And, and thank you yeah. because this has gotten us to discuss yeah. this episode. Maybe that was the way. art. Um, <laughs> yeah. So th- th- anyway, there's, 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 a lot, there's a lot going on here. Um, and I think uh, the, the issues just aren't... It'll be interesting to see how courts deal with this. And one of the, one of the additional problems you can have is the, the, the possible anonymity of the blockchain. In a situation I discussed, let's say I had a car and I sold it to Kirk and I, f- I made a fake title and signed it over to him. And then I sold the same car to somebody else on another title. Okay, well, one of you didn't get real title. Uh, Kirk's probably going to win because I gave it to him first, right? Uh, even though he got the fake title. But they both people have a remedy. Whoever, you know, between the two of them aren't really at odds. They're both mad at me because I'm the one that did wrong. Yeah. And so you can come sue me. To, one person's going to come sue me and get their money back, right, for, for their car. Uh, and that, that's how that would work. What if you don't know who it was? Because it's an anonymous yeah. transaction on the blockchain. Now who do you sue? Yeah, and that's where you really bump into the problems in this. Is it's, it, And I, I like your comment with the snake oil. You know, the problem with the snake oil salesman was not that they sold snake oil. The problem was that they sold snake oil from a wagon and then left town. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the apothecary who had his, his, you know, building in the same town didn't sell snake oil. Or sometimes he did, but he could be held accountable yeah. for it. And so he, he may have paid more attention. Now, were some of the remedies he sold probably things that didn't work? Yes. Yeah. You know, at the same time, he... He sold them because people wanted them because they thought they might work. He had a legitimate reason for selling them, and he knew he would be accountable. That was really the problem. We say a snake oil salesman. The problem with yep. the snake oil salesman is not so much what they sold, but the fact that they sold it and then left town yeah. and could not be in They bailed, yeah. <laughs> and so they could sell something which they truly knew yeah. was worthless. So I think the, the answer probably ultimately with NFTs is going to be more kind of public education on what it is and how it works. Uh, and then what exactly you're buying and not buying. And maybe that's the silver lining to the Spice DAO thing is that it is a, a highly publicized opportunity to educate people on what you are and are not getting. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's interesting because they didn't even buy an NFT. They just bought the actual book. They yeah. went to get into the NFT issues to understand like, okay, from, from jump, your, your entire premise was wrong. 
Uh, and you can't just take these pages and scan them all and stick them online and sell them. Now. Yeah. And that's the thing is what we're really talking about is they were saying we want to mint NFTs out of this book. And we're saying, hey, you have no right to do that. You yeah. have the book. But you have no that's right to do that. That's making copies and publicly displaying and distributing them. You don't yeah. have that right. And so we're getting now, even out of the sale of NFTs, we're getting at the minting of yeah. NFTs. And where does that thing go? Now, could we have done that? Could we have structured the Christie's auction that says, along with this... Uh, you're getting these rights. You can you can do whatever you want with it. You have all the rights to make movies, do whatever. Yeah. That auction could have been done. That probably is worth $2.3 million, which is yeah. why they paid that much for it. But that requires more than the permission of whoever happens to have that book right now. It yeah. requires Herbert and Jodorowsky and all these other people to agree. And something that, quite frankly, Christie's would probably not do. No. Because no. that's not what Christie's does. Christie sells individual artworks. They, yeah, they, they sell, sell things. They are in the, they are in the stuff market. Yeah, <laughs> they are in the stuff market. I mean, that's a good way of putting it. You know, it's what it, and and that's what Christie's does and that's what I think we expect Christie's to do. Again, and I think that's the thing, if I own a copy of this, you know, this screenplay, in order to make this into a movie, I do need a copy of the screenplay. If, the, if this is the only copy and it really isn't, but if this were to be the only copy, there is no point in me negotiating to get the movie rights to make the screenplay without me owning the copy. Yeah. Because I physically couldn't do it. And those are the kind of things I think you get into. You know, we talked about it in our um, our uh, uh, Public Domain Day episode of the fact that, you know, the original of, of some of these works is gone. Yeah. You know, so we have, you know, yes, it's now public in the public domain, but the original of that work may not exist. So what is actually in the public domain? Well, yes, the work is in the public domain, but nobody knows what work it is. If a certain individual copy of that was to surface, that this is the the original copy that is now in the public domain, the owner of that copy would have these rights because yeah. that is in the public domain, not because they have the rights. Everybody has the rights, but they're the only one who has the copy. Yeah, um, practically <laughs> speaking, they're the only one that can do it. Now, once somebody else gets a copy, then you know, all bets are off. Yeah, well, once they make the movie, anybody else can then make the movie with the identical dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but those are the kind of things that you, you potentially get into with it. So I think that that's where we had this kind of disconnect as to what it was. That's the value in this. And, and again, I look at it and say, you know, quite frankly, if this group had wanted to make this movie... I mean, why on earth are they not negotiating with Frank Herbert's estate? Why on earth are they not yeah, negotiating just go get the with rights. people? Now, presumably they can't because there's the one that just came out. I would assume that Herbert's estate granted to... It's Denis... I can't pronounce his name. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. Villeneuve. I think he's another French uh, director, maybe. Um, but presumably him and his production company have the exclusive rights to do this for some period of time. They've optioned those rights and can make mm-hmm. a series of films. So, you know, Herbert's estate probably can't grant these rights right now. Um, but you know those don't usually last, and that that is, by the way, one of the reasons why Spider-Man took so long to get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Somebody had optioned all those rights, well, but it turned out a bunch of movies. When Marvel, when Marvel got its rights, the 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 rights to Spider-Man were sold outside of the entire rights to the Marvel I Universe. I think Sony held them, right? They had yeah, because like they like made a, the original Spider-Man movie or made a Spider-Man movie beforehand. Um, and when Marvel Marvel actually looked to sell off its entire portfolio, and did not the the buyer, and I believe it is Sony. Did not want it and solely purchased um, Spider Man. Spider Man, yeah. So Marvel retained the rights and decided to make movies on its own. And the amount they had offered the entire Marvel Universe to Sony for is less than Infinity War made. <laughs> Just Infinity War. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's an important thing to keep in mind that, you know, like, you can buy those rights. I mean, yeah. you know, those are those things, you know, as what's out there. And so, and that's why you have this issue is Spider Man was simply separate than yep. the rest of the rights. He was sold differently. One final thing I want to talk about briefly before we wrap this up, because this is probably going to be one of our longer episodes. We actually debated putting this into, into two different ones. Uh, well, I think we can cram it all in. We talked about the moral rights to start with and, and yeah. the possibility of destroying something. One of the things these guys wanted to do was set this book on fire <laughs> yeah. uh, and burn it as some kind of publicity stunt. Now, they had some sort of the usual internet mythology that by destroying the original copy that they somehow cut off some rights. Uh, that is not how that works. I've yeah. actually heard that from people before. Like, oh, I tore up the contracts. Now it's no good. Yeah, no, it comes you, from, you ruined a piece of paper. I think it comes from, again, some of the, the crypto thing with the idea that we create the crypto and then we destroy the computer that yeah. created it so therefore nobody can ever recreate it um, or uh, modify it because it's the, yeah. the the necessary code to do so is gone yeah. completely. And that's, yeah, I get that mythology is where it comes from because in a computer world that is possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a question of whether if they were to destroy it, could they be held viable for violating moral rights uh, in the originals? Um, now, that assumes that those are originals and that they would otherwise qualify for that. But uh, just a kind of a side question that e- even the idea of just buying the book to, for the purpose of burning it, if nothing else, yeah. could, could itself present some uh, some vexing uh, It could. I think the interesting thing truly about that, quite frankly, is why would you? If you're actually a fan of Dune and willing to pay $2.5 million yeah. to get this, 
why would you want to destroy something that's in many respects this cool? Yeah, the the value comes in it being uh, the physical thing. Like I yeah. said, I you know John Lennon's guitar. I keep going to that back to that example. I can just buy a guitar. I can get a picture of John Lennon's guitar, but the original is what has value because that's the one that the man actually played. You know, that's why it's important to us is because there's history attached to these things. Yeah. There's also I forget I was telling Kirk about this yesterday, but there's a story and I can't I couldn't find it for this episode. I was looking it up, but some some digital camera was used to take some famous picture of like a war somewhere, and the camera that took the picture sold for for a lot of money at auction because it was the camera that was in that person's hands and was physically there to capture this moment and you know it's it's that we as people attach value to things based on this history uh of, of where it was and, yeah. and it was present for this that that means something to us for some reason so yeah we have this attachment to things and it kind of comes back to our the court's comments with the if you gave the person the physical thing there's that pain of yeah. giving it up we have that association with it. The example I use is sort of the things that sort of picking on John Lennon's guitar. We can be a whole lot less interesting. And, and I'm a big fan of Weird Al Yankovic. I think his music is hilarious. Yeah. My kids have gotten into it, you know, it's whatever it is. I, they literally know the song by heart, but one of the things we keep talking about is the Kleenex used by Dr. Dre. Mm -hmm. I bought it on eBay. <laughs> um, you know, which is a line from a Weird Al Yankovic song from eBay. Um, and, but that was sold. Like there was a Kleenex that, you know, Dr. Dre supposedly used, dot, dropped on the ground. It was picked up by a fan and it then sold on eBay and it sold for a rather substantial amount of money. If People I buy game worn jerseys. That yeah, they buy game worn you know. jerseys. I mean, I own, I own numerous scripts for movies. Oh, I've seen them on, on your um, wall. They hang on, on your your office, yeah. um, I own an original prop from Survivor. Um, I just put a tweet on, if you follow our Twitter uh, uh, feed, guys, I just put a tweet on of my copy, my signed copy of Timothy Zahn's Air of the Empire. That is pretty dang cool, I have to admit. Yeah, but <laughs> same, like Kirk said with the art, it's signed in number. They only made 300 copies of that particular run on the book, but you can go buy a copy yeah. right now for $12, you know? Well, one of the things I, I place particular value on, it's unsigned as to what it is, but it is a shooting script from Aliens. I value it because I've read it. And I know what's changed in the dialogue yeah. watching the movie. And it's incredibly cool to like be able to go through the script watching the movie and go, wait, that's not the right line. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. But the actor changed that. You know, the value of that is having that physical script. You know, as to, you know, what is, is that a particularly valuable physical script? No, it's not signed. It's not a limited edition. Obviously, there are a limited number of them. But typically, when you talk about collectible scripts, they're usually signed by the cast. Yeah. This one's not. Um, you know, it's just one I got. Does it have value? Of course it does. I actually bought it in a public, in a public auction. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's where the NFT functions here is because there is this unique token and only one person can really claim possession of it. You have created a market for scarcity. You've yeah. manufactured scarcity in a digital work that wasn't there before. And that's what makes the, the blockchain different from my hypothetical website where I'm just selling JPEGs. Yes. Even if what you own is the pointer. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the pointer technically isn't anything. You just own the pointer. Yeah. So that's probably a good place to stop. Um, so uh, we've got uh, more things planned. Um, we're going to do a, a another episode on culture and IP and how that works. Mm -hmm. um, we'll probably revisit our uh, episode we did on Civilization VI and the, the dispute that came up there with uh, the Cree people of Canada. Uh, and we might try and bring in a guest. We're still trying to mull that over. Uh, but we there's some interesting laws in Mexico about this that we kind of want to talk about because it's, uh, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird that we don't have it here. And this is a podcast that's all about talking about weird stuff that nobody understands. <laughs> well, and, that's, and the thing about it is, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say it's weird, but it's not U.S. law. And the U.S. has nothing like it. Yeah. Um, and so to us as, you know, people working in the U.S. legal system, it is a weird law. Yeah. But it's also a very intriguing concept. And that's kind of why we want to kind of like moral it. rights we don't really have. And maybe at some point we'll have to have this by treaty. But anyway, so we're going to cover that at some point. And after that, we don't know. We'll have to see what happens. We'll see what comes in there. All right. That's all for this time. Uh, Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 